Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another exciting, I mean, this is like exciting, you guys. I am so excited for this show right now. I mean, I'm excited for all the shows, but this is a topic I've been wanting to cover for so long. Welcome to a very exciting Animals to the Max. I am your host, Corbin Maxey. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen all around the world. Okay, let's just cut to the chase. So I started this podcast nearly two and a half years ago, almost, oh my goodness, it'd be three years in November. And I had a list of all the dream topics I wanted to talk about. And at the top of the list, we had hyenas, which we've covered. Go check it out if you haven't with the hyena scientist, Dr. K. Holcamp. I had leopard seals, which we just did leopard seals. Go check that out with Doug. The other animal, the third animal on that list was the wolverine. I don't know what it is, Ever since I was a kid, I have just been fascinated with wolverines, and I wanted to learn more about them. And you'll hear during this interview, I just remember as a kid reading in this book about North American mammals, I think, this one story about a wolverine killing a polar bear at a zoo in Germany. I'll never forget that. So as a kid, I remember thinking, my goodness, like what type of animal is this? It's like the size of a, it's like the size of a terrier and it killed an animal the size of a polar bear. Like this animal's ferocious. Like I wanted to learn more about it. And unfortunately, when I was a kid, there wasn't much else I could find about it. There was uh, barely a picture of one. There was one picture of one. It was like grainy and fuzzy of the Wolverine. Not much has changed since I was a kid reading that book, you know, being fascinated with Wolverines. I, you know, I'm still fascinated with them today. And it's still hard to find a lot of information about them. Not much has really changed since I was a kid. And for years, I've been searching to find that perfect Wolverine researcher. And I, I'll tell you what, I found the perfect person. I'm so happy she agreed to come on the show. On the show today, we have Rebecca Waters, and she is the executive director of the Wolverine Foundation. It's a nonprofit comprised of wildlife scientists with a common interest in, you guessed it, Wolverines. And she is a wealth of knowledge. And she she is, oh my goodness, I loved talking with her. Time like flew by during this interview. I wanted to extend it to longer than an hour. Like I just, mm, just her stories and the fact that she's actually seen a Wolverine in the wild. And that might, for some of you listening who don't know much about Wolverines, you might be like, okay, well, that would make sense. She's a Wolverine researcher. Of course you'd see them in the wild. Well, in reality, a lot of Wolverine researchers have never seen a Wolverine in the wild. And matter of fact, Rebecca has only had one encounter. And that, that first encounter was when she first started her career working at the Wolverine Foundation. And she has yet to see another one. So they are super elusive. Not much is known about these animals, these carnivorous animals, the largest member of the weasel family living in North America and also in uh, the northern parts of uh, Eurasia. So fascinating. So you'll definitely love this episode and you're going to learn a lot. I learned a lot during the show, including, did you know that Wolverines are actually quite good parents? I had never heard that until this interview, so she'll talk more about that. Before we get into this episode, as always, please make sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating wherever you listen to the show. And even in the rating, if you say like, hey, my name is Becky from blah, 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 and I'm from Rhode Island, and I loved episode, I don't know, 
uh, one one oh nine with the drafts. Like let people know, you know, do a reference, and that really helps get the show out there and helps people make a decision on maybe which episode they should listen to. So we appreciate all the ratings and reviews. And as always, make sure to follow me on my social channels on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. My tag is just at Corbin Maxi, and I will include the links in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this interview. And before we get to, I just, I just want to say, I hope for those of you who are listening, who are like, maybe like not really thrilled with Wolverines and you think they're just like, Oh, these are just nasty creatures or, Oh, maybe these are just dangerous animals. And you know, please listen with an open mind because I really think you're going to change your mind about the Wolverine. I really, really do. I really do. I hope you enjoy my interview with Rebecca Waters, the executive director of the Wolverine Foundation. All right, and we are now live on the show, you guys. I am, first of all, I am so excited because I'm such a fan, but we have Rebecca Waters from the Wolverine Foundation. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Rebecca, I've been doing my podcast for almost three years, and I swear to you, at the top of my list were Wolverines, and I've been, like, wanting to interview someone about Wolverines for the longest time, and I I swear to you, and I'm like, oh my god, we finally got somebody, so I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. Oh, well, I really appreciate the enthusiasm that you bring to the topic of Wolverines. I love talking about them, so. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you what. It was really hard to find someone or like a scientist who studies Wolverines. Like I literally went to Google and that's how I found the Wolverine Foundation because there's really not many of you. And so that's why it was like, oh, my God, I got a great guest on the show because there's not many of you. There's yeah, I mean, it's a rare animal. And and so a consequence of that is that there really are not that many um, researchers. Uh, so, yeah, we can be hard to track down. But yeah. Yeah, just I'm glad you found me. <laughs> just like the Wolverine, right? <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. And hold on. I have to show you my shirt. Do you see my shirt? I do see your shirt. Yes. Michigan Wolverine. I, is that where you graduated from? Or um No, I that sounds awful. No, my wife's actually from Michigan and she got me this shirt. Okay. And so yeah, and I but but then I found out Michigan doesn't like have any Wolverines anymore. I guess we can get into that later, but isn't that crazy? Yeah, a lot of people are really disappointed to hear that. And I, I struggle with whether or not I should like disillusion people who are really enthusiastic about Wolverines because they're from Michigan. But unfortunately, there really isn't a population there. And we don't think that there has been within historic time. So um it's it's sad. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Sorry, <laughs> Michigan folks. <laughs> okay. So let's just let's can we just start from the beginning? Because I know a lot of people might have an idea of what a Wolverine is. But let's just talk about them and you know, where they're found. So Wolverines um, are a, a cold environment, what we refer to as a circumboreal species. They're found in the northern hemisphere. And they're found in cold places. Um, usually places that have snow on the ground well into the spring, and we can get into why why that is. Um, and they like, uh, you know, areas with a little bit of um, rugged topography, particularly as you come south and into the southern extent of their range in the U.S. Rockies. They're really only found in, in the mountainous areas because, of course, the, that cold weather habitat and that spring snow is on top of the mountains. Mm-hmm. And they're found in um, North America, of course, in Canada and the U.S. And then in Eurasia, they are in Scandinavia, um, Finland, a large population in Russia, 
uh, a very tiny population probably in China. We don't know that much about those wolverines. Um, and a few in Kazakhstan and then, of course, in Mongolia, which is where I do a lot of my work. Wow. Wow. Okay. And a, a wolverine, uh, what is this animal related to? Is, is it related to a bear? I know a lot of people, and I actually know that answer, but a lot of people are like, oh, it's related to a bear. Uh, so good. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they have all of these like nicknames that, that are sort of confusing for categorizing wolverines. So like, you know, they're called skunk bears or devil bears. Um, there are some associations with cats. So like nasty cat is a nickname for a wolverine. Um, but they're actually weasels. They are the largest terrestrial member of the weasel family. Wow. So they're related to Otters and badgers and, uh, you know, the little weasels that um, are found throughout the, the United States and um, across Eurasia, too. Short-tailed weasels, least weasels, um, all the weasels. Okay, so they're the largest, the largest member of the Mustelidae family, correct? The Mustelids. They're the largest terrestrial member of the Mustelid family. Um, sea otters are actually larger than wolverines, oh. but they're in the ocean. So Yeah, um, I didn't you know. know that. Oh my God. Okay. Yep. And how, so how big, um, do, do wolverines get? A, a very large wolverine would be probably 40 pounds. Um, in the ecosystem where I work, which is the greater Yellowstone ecosystem in the United States and also in Mongolia, um, you know, we think that probably the largest wolverines top out at around 30 pounds. Um, as with many mammal species, there's a gradient as you go north, the animals get larger. So if you're up in Alaska or you're up in Siberia, um, you might see some larger wolverines. But down here um, at the southern limit of their range, 30 pounds is, is a big wolverine. Oh my God. Okay. So can I, I know I'm going all over the place, but I want to ask just That's a fine. little bit about your background because a lot of people, okay. I can't imagine growing up being like, Oh, one day I want to work with Wolverines. Like they'd be like, wait, what? Like, how did you get into the field to become the executive director? Um, it's such a long circuitous story. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think about how to make it as short as possible. I actually started out in, um, I've always loved animals and I have always been fascinated by animals, but I do not come from a background where I realized that chasing animals around the mountains was actually like a viable career path. Um, so I, it didn't really even occur to me that you could do that until I joined the Peace Corps and I went to Mongolia and was assigned to be an environmental volunteer. Um, on the basis of nothing whatsoever, because my undergraduate degree is actually in anthropology, but I had been involved in like, I don't know, like the outing club at my university. And so Peace Corps was like, hey, that's great. You have some environmental background. We're going to assign you to be an ecology teacher. And I never taught, I mean, I never even taken ecology. And so I was like, <laughs> okay, well, I guess I'll go to Mongolia and teach ecology then. Um, so I was in a school in a great town in central Mongolia. And during the summers, which I had off, um, I just started volunteering with a snow leopard project in um, northern Mongolia. And that was where I figured out like these wildlife biologists were coming to Mongolia to study snow leopards. And I was like, this is amazing. It's like the an introvert antisocial person's dream because you get to <laughs> run around in the mountains. You don't have to talk to anybody. You're looking for all of these magnificent wildlife species. Um, and so 
I, I was really fixated on snow leopards and wolves. And um, I decided to come back to the US and do my master's degree in wildlife uh, ecology. And I was doing that and I was studying um, the wolf reintroduction, kind of the consequences of the wolf reintroduction to Yellowstone 10 years after the fact. And of course, there's a biological side to that story um, that's very inspiring because it was hugely biologically successful. But it was also very socially contentious. And so as as I was doing this research uh, on wolves, I, I realized this is really much more about human conflict than it is about the biology of the animal. Um, and at a certain point, I think I just kind of reached my like breaking point with with dealing with angry people. And I mentioned to a friend of mine who happened to be the field coordinator for the Absorca Beartooth Wolverine Project that I, I was kind of being sarcastic. I just came into the office one day and I was like, you know, what I really need is a species that runs around in the mountains and that nobody cares about or knows anything about. And he was like, oh, why don't you come on this Wolverine expedition with me? Because I need to go check out this animal's collar points. And so um, I was like, okay, sure, I'll do that. And um, we went on that expedition. It was like 42 miles in two days across the, um, across like the, this really high elevation area of the Dorcas. It was absolutely spectacular. Um, and the Wolverine, not the Wolverine we were tracking, actually a, a different Wolverine came into our camp um, that night. And so I, and that encounter with the Wolverine was so intriguing to me because it was such a, um, I don't know, it was just such a cool animal. And it was obviously as curious about us as we were about it. And I was just really hooked. I was like, this is the species I want to be working with and studying. And so I finished my master's degree. I did finish my master's degree on wolves. Um, and then it turned out that there was this unstudied population of wolverines in Mongolia. And I spoke Mongolian because I had been a Peace Corps volunteer there. And so I started a Mongolian Wolverine project. And I, from there, I was asked to be the executive director of the Wolverine Foundation when the previous uh, ED was retiring because I had gotten to know everybody within the Wolverine research community. So that's the long convoluted story of how I ended up as a Wolverine researcher. That is the best story. I backstory. I have one of the best I've heard. That's amazing. You go into, I'm serious, snow leopards, wolves, and then somehow you fall into Wolverines and you encounter one in camp. Can I just, okay. What was that experience like? Were you like, I mean, were you like, you know, going out to go to the bathroom or go grab some food or you're tucking in at night. Then all of a sudden you're like, Oh my God, it's a Wolverine in camp. So the, the person who I was working with, a guy who was the field coordinator for the Absorca Beartooth project, um, <clears throat> When he invited me on this trip, he was like, you know, there's, it's going to be a long, grueling trip. It's going to be beautiful. We might see some bears. We'll probably see some elk. It's spectacular country, but don't get your hopes up. You know, it's totally impossible that we're going to see the wolverine. There are wolverine researchers who work on wolverines for decades and they never see a wolverine in the wild. So like, I just don't want you to, to think that, you know, you're actually going to see the wolverine. And I was like, that's fine. As long as I don't see angry wolf uh, you know, people who are angry about wolves, I will be totally happy. <laughs> and so we we're hiking around up there and we had pitched our camp and it was kind of getting to be dusk. And he had his dog with him and we had eaten dinner and we were washing the dishes. And all of a sudden I, I heard him yell, Dusty, no, come back. And I was like, what? And, and so I kind of 
turned and looked at him and said, you know, what's going on? And he's like, it's the Wolverine. It's right there. It's right there. And I looked over the edge of this little like drop off into the meadow and his dog and this Wolverine were like heading for each other. And I, if thank goodness she was an obedient dog because she, I don't know that she would have won that encounter. She oh came back and the Wolverine followed her up the little rise and saw us and kind of stopped and looked at us. And then for about, I think it was probably like 15 minutes, the Wolverine circled our camp and he kept jumping up onto like rocks from different vantage points to get a look at us and um, kind of like circling to end like pausing and kind of, you know, cocking his head and kind of staring at us. And he was like, what are you doing up here? I don't know what you are. I don't know what that, that animal with you is. Um, but clearly just as, curious about us as we were about him. And I, there was, I don't know, like I said, there was something about that experience, having that encounter that was just quite transformative. And then he ran off and I know it was a male because we subsequently pulled um, hair out of his tracks. He had crossed a snowfield and we analyzed that DNA. And that's how we know also that he was not the Wolverine that we were looking for, the one that had been collared, but he was subsequently uh, caught by the Observer Beartooth Project and collared in February of the following year. And they had a collar on him for like two weeks and then he just disappeared. He probably dispersed. He was probably a fairly young male. Um, so I don't know what actually happened to that Wolverine, but he changed my life in huge ways. So. Wow. And that remains the only Wolverine I've ever seen in the wild. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm a big believer in things being meant to be. And I'm a big believer, like things happen for a reason. And the fact that you go out your first time and you see, you have an encounter, like a long encounter, you said 15 minute encounter with the Wolverine. That's, that's like unheard of. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember whether it might've been 11 minutes. It was either oh, 11 fine. minutes or 16 minutes, but <laughs> anyway, it was quite, yeah, it was quite a long. And you know, some Wolverines, Wolverines have this reputation for being either extremely shy of people, right? You hear like two stories. There's a story where, oh, they need wilderness and they can't stand people. And the first sign of a person, they'll take off. Um, so yeah, in that sense, it was quite a long encounter. But the other story that you hear about Wolverines is that they're very aggressive and not afraid of anything. And they'll just come at you. And, you know, they're like, people have these stories where they, they say that Wolverines were like preparing to attack them or something um, because the Wolverine comes towards them. So uh, this, this, this experience kind of straddled that line. The Wolverine didn't run off. It wasn't scared of us, but it, it, it was in no way aggressive either. It was just like, Hey, what are, what are these people doing up here? So yeah, it was, it was a really cool experience. Rebecca, were you like at any point nervous? No, not at all. Yeah. I don't think I would be, I don't know. I'm just, I don't think I would be either. I think I just would be just an ob such a, I mean, my, that's like seeing a unicorn. I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> I think the only thing that made okay, so I take that back. When I saw the dog and the Wolverine heading for each other, oh, yeah. I that made me nervous. But once she came back, I I mean, it was pure awe all the way. Yeah, that is such an amazing story. I mean, like, so what are my odds? Because I thought, for instance, I mean, I would love to see a Wolverine in the wild, but I mean, my chances are like slim to none, right? You said there's researchers who've never seen them. Like, what are my chances if if I wanted to see a Wolverine in the wild? Where would I have to go, and what do you think my chances would be? of actually seeing one? I think it depends on, <laughs> it depends on how much time you're willing to commit to the project of okay. seeing a Wolverine. I have uh, two weeks and I have okay, a film crew. Weeks. I have two weeks and a film crew. What do we have? Okay. 
um, go to Glacier National Park oh, and okay. park up in the high elevations because uh, probably the highest density of wolverines in the lower 48 is in Glacier National Park. Okay, it's so and, good to know. Okay. Um, I don't. Uh, I don't know about a film crew. If you have a professional film crew, I'm not sure whether the park would actually let you in. But if you're just a tourist with a camera and you want to get some good photos, um, I do know people who have gone and parked themselves up there over extended periods of time and gotten really great photos of Wolverines. So it can be done. The other option, and this is a little bit like if you just want to see a Wolverine and I say just you've seen see. a Yeah, I just want to see. Yeah, there are. This is probably kind of like cheating, but there are a f couple of tour operators in Finland that offer um, Wolverine restaurants. So they put out they put out carcasses oh. and you can photograph like uh, Wolverines and bears coming in on those carcasses from hides. And, you know, I, I, it's not it's not as purely magical as as encountering one in the wild, but it is a wild Wolverine. Oh, wow. Um, so. I do that. Heck yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. fine. Okay, Finland. Good to know. Do people ever really see them a lot in Yellowstone, or is that pretty rare? So Yellowstone, the this Absorca Bertie's Wolverine Project, which is the the project that was my entree into the Wolverine research community. Um, I that project existed to assess the the Wolverine population in Yellowstone. There had been a program in, in Glacier National Park that had been quite successful, a five-year uh, research collaring project, and they wanted to get data on Wolverines in Yellowstone because at that time, which was, you know, sort of 2000 to sort of 2010 when these projects were operating, there was almost nothing known about Wolverines scientifically. And so the Absorca Bertus project ran for, I think, five, six years. And detected um i think it was maybe three wolverines inside yellowstone national park and they were not residents so wow. for whatever reason um yellowstone seems not to be the most desirable habitat is for it, wolverines. is it because there's such a high concentration of other predators it might be um it might also have to do with the fact that, you know, wolverines were extirpated from the lower 48 in the early 20th century. And one of the reasons that we don't know much about wolverines is because for most of the, the era of wildlife biology as a discipline, there actually were not a substantial number of wolverines on the landscape in the lower 48. So um, it could be that as they've recolonized, uh, it's just taken them a lot longer to get down into that area. But I do think that the presence of predators on the landscape, other predators on the landscape probably does have something to do with them not selecting for Yellowstone. Okay. And also people, I mean, it's pretty crowded, right? Like it's pretty crowded. Um, but I, I, I think like the kind of the, for much of the year, it's actually not that crowded. So it just depends on whether there's there are enough places where wolverines could potentially avoid people within within a given area. Mm -hmm. And I think for Yellowstone, even though it's overrun with tourists in the summer, like truly overrun, um, there are enough places that uh, are not exposed to those numbers of tourists within Yellowstone mm -hmm. that you could have wolverines there if they were if that were good habitat for them. So. Okay. 
Okay, so let's just talk about the Wolverine as an animal because when I first think when I first heard of a Wolverine as a kid, I actually read one of my animal one of my animal books, and it said I think it was in Germany that they tried to put a Wolverine in an enclosure with a polar bear, and the Wolverine killed the polar bear. Oh gosh! Oh, okay, I'll never forget that, and I was like, "What is this animal?" And then my book was old; it was like you know twenty some years ago, and they I think they had like one picture of a wolverine. But I just wanted to know more. But all I knew growing up, and I think a lot of my listeners, they know wolverines as being ferocious animals. So let's talk about that. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, if you if you ask people about wolverines, Americans anyway, um, you tend to get two or three responses. One involves jokes about how nice it must be to study Hugh Jackman as an X-Men, by, right? Yeah, yeah. By the way, when I Google Wolverines, I saw so many shirtless photos of Hugh Jackman. And it's I know. like, and I, yeah, anyway, if you look at my Google history, it looks like I'm like stalking Hugh Jackman. <laughs> I know, I, you have to be really careful. You always have to put the Latin name in there <gasps> oh, um, because then you'll get pictures of Wolverines and not of Hugh Jackman with or without his shirt on. Good to um, and then the second reaction that I get to Wolverines um, when I ask people, what do you know about Wolverines is like, oh, they're so scary and they're so ferocious and they'll just rip your face off for the fun of it. Um, so that is definitely the reputation that they have. I don't know anything about this uh, polar bear in Germany, but if I were to um, follow up with that, I think I would want to know, like, what condition was that polar bear in? And, you know, uh what was sort of the the dynamic I, I don't know what condition was the wolverine in too because i don't i don't think it's typical that wolverines kill bears or um you know other predators but i think that they are definitely capable of doing that in certain circumstances depending again on the condition of the predator that they're encountering um they certainly lose those encounters uh, in the wild as frequently as they win them so we definitely have recorded cases of wolverines being killed by both bears and and wolves um and and they they kill each other too so wow. um that's a that's a large cause of of mortality i think really? um they kill e for, the, the wolverine wolverine against wolverine yeah, I mean, they're very, very territorial. So, you know, a wolverine of one sex will not tolerate a wolverine of the same sex within its territory unless it's a related animal. Um, but to go back to the issue of ferocity, yeah, uh, <laughs> one of the things... No, 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 it's fine. I mean, I, I like rambling conversations, so it's great. But um, <laughs> I love that's how you think of my interview, a rambling conversation. No, 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 no that's no, not what I'm saying. I just am speaking in general, especially when it's it. about because there's so much to talk about and it's all over the place right? um if you were to listen to my interviews they're just rambling conversations no seriously no, it's true. i love I it some of them they're, you, they're great no no no. i love them though i love having this conversation so anyway i was just making a yeah. joke go ahead so ferocity i think is it's an important it's important to think about where that impression comes from because for americans again particularly for um you know, Americans of European descent who came over here um, and colonized North America, most of our cultural knowledge about wolverines comes from encounters that trappers were having with this species, right? Yeah. And if you think about, I mean, most species are going to fight if they're in a trap, right? And, and, a, and a person comes up to them, like they're going to fight for their life because that's all they have. Wolverines just are capable of, of, doing that in a truly spectacular and crazy way. And so I think a lot of these 
stories about Wolverines just being like berserker crazy come from the fact that almost all of the encounters and the stories about them were these trappers who had a Wolverine backed into a corner. Its paw was in a trap. And, you know, the, the Wolverine is like, no, I, I'm going to fight to the very end. Oh. Um that said, like all weasels do have this kind of crazy personality right down to the little ones. If you've ever had an encounter with a small weasel, they do some things where that they kind of throw you off, too, because I'm a, you know, 110 pound or whatever human being. I'm like 110 times or more the size of a of a short tailed weasel. And those things will come at you, too. And you're like, what the heck, dude? Um, so, yeah, wolverines and the weasels in general do have this kind of like fearless personality i don't think that wolverines are unnecessarily aggressive um i think that they are aggressive when they need to be um and then a lot of the rest of the time if they're not feeling threatened as with the wolverine that i encountered i think they're just kind of curious and so they they move towards you which is very unexpected when you're a larger animal you expect a smaller animal to run away from you right so for humans seeing something coming towards you that's that size it reads as aggression even when it's not necessarily aggression um so yeah that i love how you explain that i never ever thought of that but you're right the only accounts the majority of the accounts are from the fur trappers and that's (laughs) and they were obviously horrific i mean just a horrific thing they did trapping all those animals for their furs and with those claw traps which are just Awful. What an awful, I, you know what I mean? Um, I never thought of it like that, but you're correct. That's like our only accounts really of these animals. Yeah. I, and that said, you know, even within indigenous cultures, wolverines do have a reputation for being sort of trickstery and mm-hmm. um, wily and, you know, definitely kind of outsized personalities. So it's, but a lot of those those uh, encounters also, at least in Mongolia where I work, um, many of those encounters also involve hunting or trapping situations. So, um, you know, again, humans encountering wolverines, it seems like those those are situations that often provoke that sort of um, response from the wolverine. In terms of their hunting behavior and kind of how they're acting with other animals, um, we do have a recorded instance of, a, I think, about a 30-pound uh, female wolverine in Alaska taking down a full-grown moose. What? Um, yeah. Oh, my God. I'm writing this down. A 30-pound yeah. female wolverine taking down a full-grown moose? Moose, yeah. And um, in Scandinavia, you know, a lot of – they have domestic reindeer herding amongst the Sami in, in Scandinavia. And there is a lot of tension around wolverines because wolverines depredate on reindeer. So they regularly kill these domestic reindeer. So they are, wolverines are definitely capable of taking down prey that is a lot larger than they are, although they're primarily scavengers. So, you know, that's, that's their main food source. But these instances of, you know, this little mustelid taking down this I mean, it would be like one of us jumping onto a Tyrannosaurus Rex and, like, killing it with our teeth or something, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah just... and I'm not trying to, like, get gruesome or anything. I'm just curious. Do they kill by disembowelment or is it just, like, do we know how they, like, their preferred killing method? They basically, I, I think, and I think this has to do with why they're they're successful in really snowy environments. Part of it has to do with the ungulates being trapped in the snow and or like oh, um, okay. less capable of moving efficiently in the snow. Oh. Um, so and wolverines, of course, they they walk 
plantigrade. So their oh. heels are down. So they oh. had these proportionally huge feet. Okay. And that allows them to float a lot more effectively on the snow than ungulates. And also competitor predators like cats and dogs, they, they walk digigrade, they're yeah. up on their toes. Yeah. And so they have less surface area, they sink more, they're not as efficient in those deep snow conditions. But wolverines are very efficient. And so if you have a moose or an elk or a reindeer struggling through deep drifts of snow, wolverine is much more maneuverable and it can just keep attacking that ungulate. And um, as far as I understand it, and I've only seen one video of this happening, um, the wolverine just attacks until the animal is weak from blood loss and injury and, oh. and dies. So it's however, I mean, it's not, it's, it is pretty gruesome. It's just however the wolverine can get that animal down, like okay. taking chunks out of it. Um, it's not like a cat, which has a very specific way of killing, right? Oh. Um, yeah, it's just injure the animal until it's dead. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's nature though. Like I just, yeah, I just was yeah. curious. Okay. Okay. Now are they mainly scavengers though, or are they actively hunting prey? I think it's, it's a combination of both. Um, you know, wolverines are opportunistic, so they're going to take advantage of whatever the easiest food source is. Um, and it's, it's easier for any animal to scavenge off of a carcass that's already there than it is to put the time and the energy into killing something so much larger than it is. So um, we see them from the collar data in these studies in the US, at least we see them like cruising the bottoms of avalanche chutes, um, like oh. cliff bands. And they have really good noses. So they, their sense of smell is mm -hmm. outstanding. Okay. And they can smell, we surmise from their behavior, that they can smell these carcasses that have been avalanched, um, like mountain goats and sheep, that have been avalanched off of these cliffs. And they'll just dig down into that snow however far they need to. And they have... In that, they have a frozen, reliable food source that's going to stick around for as long as they need to consume it. And also, it is only accessible to them because they can dig down in there and they can get in there and they're small and they're weaselly and they're like slinky like weasels and yeah. they can get into these little snow tunnels and they can just park themselves on that carcass and eat, eat it for a little while and then they can come out and they can patrol the rest of their territory and when they come back to it a month later, they know it's going to be there and so they have this reliable food source. So that's the role that large ungulate carcasses tend to play in the wolverine diet um and i think that again like the snow conditions are really key in that situation to keeping that food source there for them uh for like several months and then during the summer they certainly are hunting small rodents um oh. particularly it seems like the females uh probably rely a lot on pikas and oh, okay. um you know because they can also get in amongst talus during the summer mm -hmm. um, and the spring. And, of course, pikas don't hibernate, so they're accessible throughout the year. Mm -hmm. um, my Mongolian uh, contacts and interviewees uh, and my ranger partners say that in areas with marmots, they'll actually, like, dig the marmots out of the ground while the marmots are hibernating and oh. just, like, eat them. So, oh, um, God. Oh. And they, and they also hunt marmots. Um, so if you do have marmots around, that seems to be a key food source as well. Okay. So let's talk about this. Another thing I know about wolverines is they have large, large territories. Large, yes. Large. Huge. huge. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So um, male wolverines, I 
think I can't, I, it's hard for me to keep up with all of the numbers from all of the studies, but it's up to like 1500 square kilometers and females can be, you know, five, 600 square kilometers. Um, so why does this relatively small animal need such a huge yes. territory, wow. right? Like that's the big question. Um, it probably has to do with the availability of food resources on the environment. Mm. In the on the landscape, and again, these are animals that are occupying a very cold and relatively non-productive niche. They've specialized to do that, and in order to keep herself fed and hopefully to keep her kits fed when she has them, a female wolverine needs a a, a very large territory uh, that no other female wolverine is occupying. Right, and so to find those if you think about those carcasses that I was talking about, right? Like there's only so many um, sheep or goats that get avalanched each year. And a, a wolverine needs a territory that has that many carcasses. And so she will defend that territory as, as large as it needs to be to keep herself fed and her kits fed. And then males, um, you know, they want all of the same things that the female wants in her territory, you know, and, or like enough food to support themselves, but they also want uh, to have a mate. So they're, the females disperse and they find a, a territory that's adequate to their purposes. And they don't, as far as I can tell from the data, they don't really care whether there's a male there or not, but the oh. males tend not to stick in a place like they'll disperse. They do these very long distance dispersal movements. Um, and the male will go to a mountain range. If there's not a female there, he'll go to, you know, another mountain range and keep looking. So, wow. Yeah. They're just so, just so yeah. interesting. So, I mean, out of curiosity, you know, so the Wolverine foundation, it's comprised of wildlife scientists with a common interest in Wolverines. Mm -hmm. Why study Wolverines? <laughs> I, I'm sorry. That's such a hard question. <laughs> Why is My the gosh. sky blue? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, it is. It's one of those questions. that's like a really valid question. But if you're a Wolverine researcher, you're like, wait, what? Like, yeah. why do you need oxygen? Come on. I get, I, um, and I'm, I'm just I'm just curious. No, I, I get it. I am so happy there is an organization. I just but some mm -hmm. people might be like, why Wolverines? Why? Why care? Yeah. So I it is a good question. And I think Historically, of course, um, the North American model of, of wildlife conservation is really built on this idea of productivity for hunters and trappers, right? And wolverine was a species that um, it wasn't abundant enough ever to be like a really key part of the fur trade. But it's a really wolverines are a huge part of trapping culture because they're considered to be the most elusive and the most diabolical and the most wily and the hardest to trap. And so they, they have been part of trapping culture and um, it was a species about which very little was known. And so there was an impetus, particularly in Alaska, um, to learn more about them. And I think the earlier studies of wolverines were kind of tied to uh, trapping management, basically. Oh. Then you start moving into an era, you know, from the 1960s and 1970s, where we, where our sort of cultural dialogue about the value of wildlife really changes. And we know that we've lost a lot of our native species, or they've become highly imperiled. And so then you want to learn about, um, about wolverines to understand, well, where did they go? And why did we lose them? And how can we conserve them? Because that's the mandate that we agreed on as a nation in the 1960s, 1970s with the Endangered Species Act, that was a commitment to uh, the idea that wildlife is part of our American heritage. And so 
that was, I think, part of the the that second round of research that started in like Glacier National Park with collars. Um, like, what is this species? It's it's part of our part of our suite of American wildlife. We need to learn more about it. We need to understand how to conserve it. Um, as we move into the impending and perhaps like imminent era of climate change, which is happening right now, wolverines are absolutely imperiled by climate change and. As a climate-threatened species and as a charismatic climate-sensitive species, I think we have a lot to learn about how to do conservation for high-elevation climate-sensitive species by studying the wolverine and by really looking honestly at the conservation dialogue and process that follows the science. So those are my justifications from a kind of like, where does this all fit into the history of American conservation and wildlife research? Now, why else would you want to study wolverines? <laughs> to the question of like, it's like the air you breathe or the sky that's, that's blue, you know. Yeah. Um, they're just an awesome, amazing, incredible, fascinating species. And for a lot of people who are highly motivated to be out in the outdoors and in the mountains, it gives you an amazing opportunity to do that and also to make a contribution to all of that stuff I just talked about, yeah. like, you know, the wildlife conservation scene. So. I, I'm happy you mentioned earlier, you mentioned like, um, you know, how it was built on the fur trapping, you know, that the fur trapping trade. <laughs> It was interesting how you said that even back in those days, wolverines were kind of elusive. Like, cause I, cause I didn't know one day, I didn't know if a hundred years ago, wolverines were so abundant that people were trapping them left and right. But it sounds like you said that they've always been kind of that mysterious, elusive animal that people have always been really intrigued by. Yeah. So we were just talking about the large territory requirements yeah, yeah, for yeah. wolverines. Uh -huh. um, wolverines are naturally rare on the landscape because they have these huge territorial requirements. You cannot actually fit an, a lot of them on the landscape. So no matter how good a job you do at conserving your wolverine population, there is always going to be an upper limit to the number of wolverines that you can actually sustain on a landscape. And so they are naturally rare, both because of their territorial requirements and because of other life history characteristics. So wolverines have a very low reproductive rate. Oh. They don't reproduce until the females don't usually have their first litter of kits until they're somewhere between two and four years old. I think the okay. average age of first reproduction is 3.4 years or something like that. And they only have, um, on average, like two kits every other year. So, you know, there, there are a lot of factors that contribute to this animal just mm -hmm. being a very uh, infrequent animal on the landscape. Wow. I just, okay, so fascinating. Okay, let's go over... Rebecca, let's go over some fun facts, some fascinating facts about the Wolverine. Because just, just hit me. I want to be just, and I'm sure my audience is dying to know too. I want to hear some fun stuff. Okay. And fascinating. Uh, what, what kind? What kind of fun stuff? So what uh, is? So what is something that like the average person probably wouldn't know about a Wolverine? Uh, I think most people don't know much about Wolverines. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that probably people don't. No. Uh, first of all, they don't know that these animals are, are capable of killing large prey, as yeah. we discussed. Um, they probably don't know. Oh, they probably don't know that wolverines, despite their crazy reputation, are actually really good parents and very family oriented. Really? So, I didn't know um, that. 
So oh female wolverines are, you know, of course, they have the, the kits in the den from about February 14th to about Mother's Day. Um, so, you know, Valentine's Day to Mother's Day is the, the period where the kits are in the den. And um, it used to be believed uh, that male wolverines were so like cantankerous and ornery that they would just go into the den and kill all the kits, even if they were their own kits, which is just evolutionarily um totally nonsensical. But what we know from some of these collar studies now is that the males visit the dens of the kits while they're in the den. And then after they're wound, um, the mother's like, okay, I've had enough of this. I've been nursing these things for three months. It's your turn now. And so there's like this joint custody thing that happens um, where the Wolverine kits will hang out with their mom for a little while. And then they'll hang out with their dad for a little while and follow him around. And then they'll go back and hang out with their mom. And they're tolerated within their parents' territory for up to a year and a half. And then they disperse. So there's this long-term parental care thing that's going on that is kind of a rare occurrence amongst mammals. Um, and I think that that's one of the most startling and interesting thing that's that's come out of these collar studies that we've been we've been doing um wow are they are they forced to be are they forced to be monogamous because they are because there's so few of them and they're they're actually not strictly monogamous um you know the the males will mate with multiple females in a year and the females will mate with different males in different years so because the way the territories are structured you usually have uh two females and then the male territory overlaps those two female okay. territories often it the male's territory won't necessarily fully encompass the female's territory and so she'll have another male that's overlapping part of her territory um, so they're not they're not exactly monogamous, but they definitely have like a fairly limited number of potential partners. Um, and that that yes, it is because they're they're rare, right? Like there really aren't a lot of them out there. And so you when you establish a territory, whoever your territory overlaps with, that's kind of your option. So yeah. yeah, will a male visit different dens with different kits? Yes. Yeah. Wow. So, also, I think there were males in the Glacier National Park study. Um, one male in particular, I think his, um, I think his uh, code was M1, and he he had mated with two females that year, and he was recorded visiting the dens of both those females during during that year. So, yeah, wow. it's pretty. That is something I learned today. Can you hit me with yeah. anything else like that? That's amazing. Well, I had no idea. Some of the things, just these like delightful kind of like stories that come out of having animals collared. I, I mean, collaring, of course, can be quite controversial, but like the data that you get and the information that you get is the science is so great, but also the stories that come out of it are so great. So um, a lot of Wolverines seem to like just climbing mountains for the heck of it. Um, so, really? you know. So M1, his daughter, F5, she used to, they, her collar data would show her like going up to the tops of uh -huh. mountains, and just kind of like hanging out up there. And there wasn't really a very clear reason um, that she was doing that. Uh, she just seemed to like going up to the tops of mountains. Now, unfortunately, um, like many human mountaineers who like doing things like that, she died in an avalanche before she had a chance to disperse. She got oh. avalanched off one of those mountains. Shoot. Yeah, but M I M1 also or was it M3 his son M M1 had a son M3 who did this crazy feat of mountaineering in Glacier National Park where he climbed Mount Cleveland in like 
I think it was 90 minutes. Um, he was like, you can see on his caller data that he, he was headed for a point that was on the other side of the mountain and he started to kind of go around the mountain. And then he decided, you know what, it's, it's way more efficient for me to just do this in a straight line. And that's a huge peak. Right. And, um, he just turned and like went straight up the mountain and straight back down the other side. And there was a carcass on the other side that he was going to visit. And so, um, you know, they, they do these, these kind of crazy feats of, of mountaineering. And they're also these great long distance athletes too. Um, we had, uh, one Wolverine M56. Um, he was collared by the wildlife conservation society. Um, and he was collared outside of Jackson hole, Wyoming. And he was hanging up, uh, hanging out around like Togati pass for a while. And then he went down to the Southern edge of the winds. And then he went, um, which he was one of the first Wolverines recorded in the Wind River Range in, I don't know, decades. And then he went down and was seen outside of Laramie, Wyoming, on a cow carcass. And we were like, what is this Wolverine doing? That's not even Wolverine habitat. Where is he going? He's really close to Colorado. And so he ended up going to Colorado and becoming the first Wolverine, documented Wolverine in Colorado in 90 years. Hung out there for three years until his transmitter died. We assume that he was still there for some amount of time and then left. And then in 2016, um, a rancher or ranch hand in North Dakota shot a wolverine oh. that was amongst its cows, which is tragic and very upsetting that that's what happened. I don't think the ranch hand even knew what the animal was. He just saw this this animal in with its cows and was worried that it was a threat to them. Um, but because there are no wolverines in North Dakota, the North Dakota um, Game and Fish Department confiscated the carcass and necropsied it. And when they opened the animal up, it, the transmitter inside, it was M56. So this animal who was collared outside of Jackson, Wyoming, became wow. the first wolverine in Colorado in 90 years and also the first wolverine in North Dakota in 90 years. They do these, they just, I mean, that's the kind of inspiration that you get from wolverines. Like they just keep going and going and going and they never stop and nothing really intimidates them so yeah super cool animal that is i am just blown away i you know we've we've had a lot of animals covered in over 100 episodes on animals to the max and this animal is i mean next to hyenas i'd have to say or some no really i mean that's those are a whole different animal yeah. <laughs> listen to that episode if you haven't but well. um I just one of the most fascinating animals on earth. I feel like I just think they are so fat. I feel like there's so much to learn. I'm sure you feel the same way. I do. And I mean, one of the things that is sort of um, both inspiring and also a little bit bittersweet is that this, we still know so little about Wolverines yeah. scientifically. And so it's a big inspiration to keep going with the research, but it's also, there's just a time crunch at this point because we don't know how climate change is going to affect the population, particularly at the kind of Southern limits of the distribution, which is where I work here in the greater Yellowstone. And also in Mongolia, of course, there's the Southern limit of their distribution there too. So, you know, there's a sense of urgency about that, but yeah, there's so many things that we don't know. Like, I, I mean, we don't even have a reliable population estimate for no the lower 48 or anywhere, they're almost impossible to, to, to census. We don't know anything about demographics. We, we sort of know that they can survive for like up to 15 years in the wild. Um, and we sort of know that female Wolverines will keep reproducing until they're quite, quite old. Um, but we don't really even know 
about like kit survivorship over over time yeah. or like recruitment of the population or anything like that. And in these meta population situations, so if you have like population nodes in different mountain ranges, um, you, you have to get wolverines from one mountain range to the next young dispersing wolverines we don't know how that works we don't know what those dynamics are like how long it takes if a wolverine dies in one mountain range and you lose like your reproductive female in that mountain range how long does it take for another wolverine to get to that mountain range and for that that mountain range to become a productive spot for the wolverine population again like those kinds of dynamics we don't know anything about we really don't know that much either about even like the percent of diet that is from scavenging versus predation. Um, and then in places like Mongolia, uh, you know, how much of that is livestock versus like, you know, carry on from wild animals. I, I mean, there's so many questions, <laughs> so much stuff that we don't know. There is. And I mean, they're listed. I, I looked it up. I mean, as least concern, but does that, is it pretty much like, we don't know, <laughs> like that's what it should be listed as because it's like, how do we really, you know, know? Yeah, the IUCN globally lists them as least concern. Um, but if you look at different regions of the world, um, I think they're considered vulnerable in Europe. Um, and then at the state level in the U.S., uh, in the lower 48, they're protected in all of the states within their range, except for Montana, which has a currently suspended trapping season. Oh, my so, God. Um, yes. But yeah. do people even um, still trap so them actively in Montana? Um, they, there, there is a desire to do so. Yes. Um, what? I mean, I guess I yeah. shouldn't be shocked. I mean, people want to shoot and trap and kill things all the time. I just, okay. Again, I think it's like for trappers again, it's like, it's not a financially important species for the most part. It's that, it's that badge of honor of like being able to trap a Wolverine and showing that you're like a real trapper. It's like the Holy grail. Right. Um, so I, I, I'm not personally a huge fan of trapping, but I work with enough people, particularly in Mongolia, who trap for subsistence reasons that I do respect the kind of knowledge and relationship with oh, nature. That out of that. However, having said that, and this is, I think, the first time I'm saying this on the, on the record, I, I do not think that Montana's trapping season is a good idea because you have these, the again, you have like a very limited number of reproductive adult animals on the landscape. And if you punch holes in those reproductive population nodes, um, you don't know how long it's going to be before you have another adult animal establish a home range in there and start reproducing. So, um, but that was not your question. Your question was about why they're listed as yeah. concern. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with them being data deficient. So yeah. you can't really say that an animal is vulnerable or threatened unless you know what's going on with the population and you can actually track the population parameters over time. And we have no real way of doing that in a reliable fashion. So are that's the tricky thing. Are they, cause you said in Mongolia, they're having problems with them predating on like livestock, right? Reindeer. Uh, in Scandinavia. Oh, they Scandinavia. Have... Okay. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Excuse me. In Scandinavia, are they predating on livestock in Montana at all? No, um, I, there's like a couple of stories from, I think, the 1950s oh. of, you know, wolverines getting in amongst sheep. And I can believe that a wolverine um, getting in to a bunch of sheep would be a problem. Um, I think that they're certainly capable of killing sheep. 
but it's it's really not a major issue um, in Mongolia. And I've been working on wolverines in Mongolia now for a decade. I have interviewed and interviewed and interviewed people because I was expecting issues with depredation. And there are reindeer herders in Mongolia as well. And I, I specifically ask them, like, do you also have problems with depredating wolverines on your reindeer? And they, everybody across the board, no matter where I was in the country, laughed at that question. There's like, no, we don't have problems with wolverines killing our livestock. So it really depends on, I think, where you are and what the husbandry practices are. Because Mongolians bring their herds in oh. each night. The most vulnerable animals, the young animals and the, the females who are nursing their young, are always brought in to the, the home corral at night. Um, and I think a wolverine has a much lesser chance of taking down like a yak or a horse or a cow. Um, and those are the animals that are kind of typically left out um, to graze. So whereas in Scandinavia, the reindeer are just kind of scattered across the landscape um, and they're not really brought in to people's homes in the, even in the evening, as I understand it. So, um, yeah. Being a researcher and traveling the world, you know, Mongolia, all over the world, studying these wolverines, is the public perception of wolverines the same in other areas of the world? Um, I think it's a little bit different. I've only really done extensive interviews about wolverines in Mongolia. Um, I think that there's a much more negative attitude towards them amongst herders in Scandinavia, again, because they do regularly depredate on, um, on these reindeer herds. But the Scandinavian researchers have, especially the Swedish uh, research program, like they have so much funding that they can put towards understanding these animals that they have a really robust understanding of like where the animals are in the landscape and what they're doing. So that's a very like logical approach to trying to manage a species with which they're is some conflict. In Mongolia, it's it's a little bit different. Like a lot of people in the country, <laughs> Um, when I first started interviewing, they were like, why are you asking about that animal? It's They, they called it a hirguyam thing, like it's a totally useless animal, we don't oh. need it. Um, and Or they were like, oh, those things are so rare, you know, why don't you ask about something more interesting like wolves? Um, that said, if you get into areas like certain communities in Mongolia are in wolverine habitat, and those people know an awful lot about wolverines, and they kind of think they're cool. Um, they 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 have that same kind of attitude of like, oh, these guys are rugged mountaineers, and they do what they want, and they can take on anything, and you know they don't they don't depredate on livestock, so we don't have a problem with them. Some of the shamans use the pelts in rituals, so I think there's a slightly more positive attitude towards wolverines um, in Mongolia. And then, of course, in the U.S. and Canada, um, at least amongst the European descended population, there's just sort of a lack of knowledge. So, yeah. And is it just across the board one species? Yes, it is. Um, okay. Of course, you know, taxonomists, they're the lumpers and splitters. There are people who want to make everything into separate species and of then course. people who just want to make everything into the same species. But looking at it both in terms of like morphology and um, also in terms of genetics, it's pretty clear that it's a, a single species between Eurasia and North America. Um, and some people classify them as separate subspecies, but okay. it's not really based on anything definitive. Like they're, they, they behave the same way. They can mate and produce fertile offspring together. So they're the same species. So in Mongolia, are you actively, um, I guess trapping is the wrong word, but <laughs> radio, <laughs> not, you know, not harming them, but radio collaring these individuals or what exactly are you doing? 
the Mongolia project, um, I work the, the place that I've selected as like the major study site is this area in northern Mongolia. It's three national parks. They're under a single administration and it's right up on the Russian border. Okay. It's a place that's, I, those three protected areas combined are one and a half times the size of Yellowstone and there are no roads. There's no infrastructure inside those parks. Um, helicopters are not available. Snowmobiles are not a- available. The The only way to access the backcountry in the winter is by ski or on the back of a reindeer. So, um, the back of a reindeer. <laughs> yeah. So you what? can ride reindeer. I, I had no you, idea yeah. you could ride oh, yeah. reindeer. What? Yeah. 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 Oh my They're God. super, it's a really cool experience. They're super smooth ride, like way nicer than horses, but wow. Um, because of those infrastructure challenges, um, when you're radio collaring wolverine, you need to put the traps, uh, the live traps, fairly far in the backcountry because that's where the wolverines are. And you need to be able to access them very quickly once there's an animal in the trap. Given those constraints, um, we don't want wolverines in the traps for longer than necessary because they can catch pneumonia and die um, or they just get hungry or they chew their way out of these log box traps. They can chew out of like a huge diameter log box trap in about four hours. Oh, my um, God. So radio collaring in Mongolia at this point has not really been a very feasible um, endeavor. At least we can't really do it in a way that I'm comfortable with ethically. So we're relying mostly on genetic studies and camera traps. And you can get a lot of information at this point out of those kinds of uh, studies. The one thing you can't get at, which is really key, is denning habitat for females. Because you, unless you are lucky enough to locate the den on the landscape, you don't know where the den is. So that's the, that's the one reason I, I would like to put collars on the Mongolian wolverines, but we haven't yet gotten to that, that phase. Okay. Okay. So we're nearing yep. an hour into the interview. I, Rebecca, okay. thank you so much for your time. Um, I, I always want to, if you have any last minute words, please share with my listeners. And also, um, how could someone who's really passionate about Wolverines help Wolverines, even if they're young listening they're like, how can I help? I guess that's not how they talk, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, first of all, thank you for having me. And, um, in terms of young Wolverine enthusiasts, I feel free to get in touch. Um, I have, when I'm in the U S I'm always happy to talk about Wolverines. I am happy to correspond by email about Wolverines. Um, there are some fairly limited, but, uh, you know, there are opportunities to volunteer with different Wolverine projects, um, citizen science opportunities, but the biggest thing for the younger folks, and this is, it's a little bit aside from the animal itself, but what I want to ask people to do is Picture a future um, where we deal with climate change in a way that creates a green economy and green opportunities. Um, because I feel like there's a there's a there's a dialogue out there about climate change, which really sees it as a split between well, we either can continue to live the lifestyle we're living now or we're going back to the Stone Age, um, and that's not the choice. You know, we can we can reinvent our entire technological system. And that's a huge opportunity. And so even if you can't be out on the landscape chasing wolverines around yourself, and if you're a young person, use your imagination to come up with solutions to this problem and then go out and enact them. You know, I I mean, it's a huge, huge opportunity to create a world that's better for everybody, wildlife and humans alike. So that's my appeal to the younger generation. Um, and, And that said, again, 
if you feel like you really want to be out there on the landscape and working with wolverines, get in touch with me. Happy to talk. That's awesome. Hey, you were, I just, I love this interview and I learned, I'll tell you what, first of all, that last fact about riding a reindeer, no idea, <laughs> mind blown. Um, but you know what blew me away is just the parental, like the parental, um, care. You know, yeah. Yeah. That, that's the word care, the parental yeah. care between the male and female wolverines. And I just, that's something so rare in mammals. And I just, I learned yeah. a lot of things today. So thank you so much for your time. And I would love to meet in person. I really would love to see a wolverine one day. I mean, could you use me in any way? <laughs> sure i mean we can keep talking you're in idaho right that's not that far from montana so right. you know drop by if you're ever in bozeman and um Heck yeah. you know thank you for everything you're doing for bringing awareness to all these uh understudied or underrepresented or misunderstood species because i think it's great to have this kind of public outreach so i really appreciate it absolutely and you just brought something up and i was going to ask you and i'm so happy you brought it up idaho because don't we have a few yeah. up north oh right? yeah oh yeah oh, you do. oh yeah do we have a big yeah. pop? okay i mean not big I but I mean, Idaho is one of the, the, the states that has a substantial wolverine population in the lower 48. So they're definitely out there. But the reason that I recommended that you go to Glacier uh -huh. is because it's a lot harder. Like the landscape is a lot more forested and I think a little bit harder to detect wolverines in Idaho. But yeah, Idaho has a fairly robust population of wolverines for sure. Nice. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Good to know. Proud of my home state. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'll include uh, contact and I mean, I can, I can include the website and, and the show notes for people to reach out and thank you once again for your time. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the animals to the max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already hit the subscribe button, it really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at Corbin Maxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.